Well, good morning. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. This is one of those texts that if I had to pick what I was preaching, I don't know that I would go to at first, but it's here in the letter that we're going through. There are many men um, that I admire, many of them in this congregation that I would rather hear from on this text, but thankfully I don't have to lean on my own understanding. All the, the treasures, the riches of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, and, and that's what we're looking at today. Here in Colossians 3, toward the end of the chapter, mainly in verses 20 and 21, this will be children and fathers or parents in the family that is in Christ. And, and just to remind you as we turn there where we've been in Colossians over the last few sermons in Colossians chapter 3 we've seen Paul's description of the Christian life um, in every facet of it and really this dynamic at every point of putting off and putting on putting off what is no longer true of us who have been raised with Christ who have died to our sin and the death of Christ and instead putting on in our lives what is true of Christ as we become more like him in heart and in mind and in will. This is the active process of sanctification, putting off what is not of Christ and putting on what is. And as we've gone even further into these ways that Christ reconciles all things to himself and sanctifies all of life for the Christian, we turn from the body of Christ, the the congregation, the church, to the rule of Christ in the single most essential social institution in our lives, and that's the family, the home. This gospel peace and Christ-like unity and mutual service that we're to find and foster in the body of Christ in the church is meant to be carried to the home and lived out there as well. And from a devotional perspective, we, we looked at last time, the commands found in this section for husbands and wives, fathers and children might be the most difficult for us to live out faithfully. Because as we, as we talked about what you are at home, who you are at home, that you are all the time. What a man or woman or child is at home that they are truly. Because it's, it's in the home that we are most prone to show the genuine condition of our hearts to others. Who you are at home is who you are really. Who you are in your marriage with your children in front of your parents. Who you are in relation to those who know you best is who you are. And because that is true, who we are in the home is really the litmus test for whether we have been truly transformed by the gospel. It is who we are in Christ if we are in Christ, whether Christ is really the rest of your new heart, the theme of your marriage, the strength of your parenthood, the reason for your obedience to your parents. It's in the day to day workings of your life that the gospel transforms or the gospel has not changed you at all. And to that end, Paul shows us here in Colossians three what a family of those who are hidden in God with Christ looks like. This is God's beautiful pattern of the new family. A family made up of new creations in Christ to have put on Christ for all of life. So in part one, we saw the rule of Christ in the home in the marriage relationship. And now in part two, we see new children and new parents. And this section really is the application of the general exhortation that Paul gave us in verse 17. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Giving thanks to God the Father through him. The home is where the gospel is first to transform. It's the first place where the gospel is to be proclaimed in word and deed. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We began to see that in the context of a gospel marriage, how the roles of husband and wife are redeemed and transformed into this glorious reenactment of the gospel, of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. And now we turn to the Lord's greatest blessing on a marriage like that, which is children. Um, the, the parent-child relationship, parenthood. And already we touch upon, I think, a key distinction between God's design for the family and, and the culture's, the world's view of the family today, that we are to see what Scripture plainly teaches. Children are blessed gifts. They're blessings. They're not hindrances to an adult life. They don't obstruct the life of parents. They enhance it. They are, as, as John MacArthur writes, a benediction from the Lord to grace our lives as parents with fulfillment, meaning, happiness, and satisfaction. They are tokens of God's loving kindness in a fallen world filled with evil. And I think you would agree with me that God has given us a lot of tokens of his steadfast love here in our church. And so this text is one that becomes very, very relevant for all of us. All of us have been children at some point. Most of us in here are parents. And so there is application for us all. We talked about the effects of the fall in the marriage relationship. There is an impact upon the relationship of parents and children as well. Right From the very beginning, there is futility. There's pain in childbirth. And then there's difficulty and disobedience because these children were conceived in sin. They, were depra- they are depraved by nature as our parents. And there's strife and conflict and sin that occurs as a result. And yet in Christ, there is redemption here too. For Christian parents... Parenting even of unregenerate children is meant to be a joy in Christ. For Christian children, even obedience to unbelieving, unreasonable parents is intended by God to be a source of blessing ultimately as well. Remember that God does nothing ultimately to his people. He does things for his people. And really the purpose of parenthood, the purpose of obedience to parents is to bless you, to make you more like Christ, to glorify Christ in your life. And that joy, that calling, is not one that is even ultimately determined by outcomes. The purpose of parenthood, the purpose of obedience to parents, is not determined by the results. Parents' success in parenthood in the Christian sense is not measured by what your children become. I know that, sounds, that might sound wrong. That might sound even unbiblical to our understanding. It's not that it doesn't matter what our children become, but success in parenthood in the Christian sense is not measured by what your children become, who they become, what they do. Don't we have a biblical promise, you might say, a scriptural guarantee that if we do the right things as parents, our children will turn out right in the end, right? Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, verse 6. What about that? I would say to view those biblical principles like the Proverbs as these sort of inviolable spiritual laws or formulas is to greatly misunderstand what the point of even wisdom literature is, which gives general principles, not blanket promises. You can take another proverb out of that same chapter there in Proverbs 22. By the humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Riches and honor and life. Now we have some prosperity gospel going. Right? If I'm humble, if I fear the Lord, I will be rich. It ignores the practical application of the proverb as wisdom for living, right? Even in verse 6, if you train a soldier in the way he should go, generally he will be a good soldier. If you train an electrician or a plumber in the way he should go, generally he will be a good electrician or plumber or carpenter. 
I think it also ignores the clear teaching of Scripture that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. If you were here for equipping hour, you saw that from the text in Romans and Ephesians. If you're going to apply Proverbs 22.6 to a child's salvation, you'll need to be willing to embrace salvation by works. The works of the parent or the works of the children. The child is saved either by the parent's training or the child's going. And that's not how salvation works. Of course we care about what our children do. We don't parent not in reference to that. We parent because of that. From the moment I I knew that both my daughters existed, I've been praying for them and and praying for the Lord to prepare Cam and I to to be effective witnesses for the sake of the gospel, to raise them up in wisdom. I want my daughters to believe. I want them to believe Christ. I want them to know Christ. I want them to obey Christ. And yet Christian faithfulness is never determined by outcomes. It's never determined by outcomes or results, but by character. For you as a Christian parent or a Christian child, the true measure of success is your obedience, your faithfulness, and your faith according to God's design and his promises in Christ, no matter the outcome, no matter what becomes of your children. Just as in evangelism, our responsibility is not outcome but obedience, that we walk in Christ and speak Christ and leave the results up to him who changes hearts. So the great measure of success in parenthood is not even the faith or obedience of your children, Though it is the longing of your heart, but rather that you, Christian mom, that you, Christian dad, put on Christ in the way that you, in the way that you parent. To be the kind of Christ-like parent that God would be pleased to use to show Christ to your children. That is the sum total of your responsibility, and that determines everything that you say and do in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in relation to your children. But God determines what happens to your children. Ours is to trust and obey. God's is to will and to work to his good pleasure. Christian children, it's the same with you. The extent of your responsibility in relation to your parents is to be like Christ in the way you obey. That may have an impact on your parents. I think often it does. It may not. God determines the outcomes, the circumstances, that he has united you with Christ in whatever situation you are in life. And put you where you are so that you may become like him in all that you do or say, no matter the circumstances or the outcome. So the challenge in texts like this, or in a corresponding text that we'll see today in Ephesians 6, is not understanding what each role needs to do. We know that well enough. Children need to obey their parents. Parents need to teach and raise their children. Our problem is not that we lack knowledge of what the family structure should be. Often, it's not just a matter of what we do. Or what our children or our parents do. It's not really a a family structure problem. And don't get me wrong, family structure is a major problem in our society. right? I don't have to rattle off statistics for you. You know it. You see it everywhere. Divorced homes, fatherless homes, parentless homes. They teach kids conflict and self-interest and rebellion. And yet if you take every one of those split homes and you, you form them back together with one man, one woman, and children, you might get more kids through college. You might get a lower rate of crime. You might get even more in an, in an incidental sort, some sort of human flourishing. But the true issue in those homes will not be resolved. Because the problem is not really a family structure problem at its heart. It's a gospel problem. Children need to know more than what they are to do. They need to discover who they are to become in Jesus. They need to know about Jesus, the identity of Jesus Christ. It's not about getting society to function with the proper family order. It's about the lordship of Christ in the home and in the hearts of those in the home. It's all in reference to him. 
There, there is nothing in any of these texts, there's nothing moral or proper, or proper or acceptable to God in the home that can be done apart from him. Every ethical responsibility we have here in Colossians is for those in the Lord, in the Lord, with the Lord. It's only in him that children may be obedient in a way that not only pleases parents, but pleases the Lord. It's only in Christ that parents may guide their children in a way that is successful in God's eyes. It's about the Lord or it's pointless. Look at how many times the Lord is mentioned in each ethical instruction. Going back to to chapter 2, from the very beginning of this section in verse 6. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's the indicative in verse 6. Right, The thing that's true, we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, received Jesus as Lord. Then the imperative, the command, walk in him. We received him as Lord, so walk in him, submitted to his lordship. Chapter 3 adds the dimension and agreement with this command. It's to not just walk after him, but in him, that we are united with him. We've been raised with Christ, hidden in God with Christ These are ethical responsibilities, obedience to parents, instruction and discipline for children that depend upon Christ as Lord. can only be done with him or in him, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. In whom the, Colossians says, the fullness of God's deity dwells bodily. It all holds together in him. Without Christ, this text is just moralism. Without Christ, this text is hopeless. Without Christ, this text is meaningless. All we are left with without Christ are just formulas and parenting strategies that try in vain to produce impossible or irrelevant results. All we have left are the world's parenting approaches, behavior modification, not not heart transformation or, or isolation from all the things in the world instead of preparing the child to live as a Christian in the world. Or self-esteem and psychology, which just breed selfishness instead of reverence for Christ and his truth, which produce true Humility. It's only in Christ that the parent-child relationship may be redeemed. So this morning, we look generally at, at these distinct ways in which both children and parents are called to greater Christ-likeness in the home. In verse 20, we see the calling of children. I think we see their calling as obedient disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21, the role of fathers, or I think even generally parents, in their calling as authoritative ambassadors for the kingdom of Christ. Obedient disciples authoritative ambassadors. So I want to read the the beginning of this kind of immediate section in verse 17, then those two verses in 20 and 21, and pray and ask the Lord's help for our study today. In verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Father, I thank you for the time that we have together to study your word. I thank you that it is sufficient for all of life and godliness. I thank you that Christ is sufficient for every spiritual need. That in him we have every spiritual blessing. Lord, I pray even now that you would humble me under your mighty hand. Lord, let me not go beyond What is written, help me to preach Christ clearly and and boldly. I pray that you would open our minds together to understand your word. Open the scriptures to us, Lord. Show us the glory of Christ here in in Colossians. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So first we come to 
Paul's instructions to children in verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Paul's command is addressed to technon. It's, it's offspring, children of any age, any child who is still under the guidance and authority of his or her parents from the youngest um, that, that can really understand to the teenager or young adult who is still within the scope of his or her parents' care before they start their own lives as adults outside of the protection of their parents. So we, we know that even after you leave the home as adults, this is a principle honoring your parents that still endures, a command that we all have for every one of us in here. But the address in this text today is more specifically in reference to those in the home of any age. So for the youngest in here who will understand me, to the 18-year-old or the college kid who still primarily lives within, within the scope of your parents' authority, this is for you. You're not excluded. And this is not just to little children. It's not just to older children. If you can understand what I'm saying to you now, Paul addresses this to you. And Paul does what many sermons don't on parenthood in this text. And not just writing about children, but to children. He addresses children directly, addressing young believers as believers, as co-laborers, as on equal ground spiritually with their parents. We are all one in Christ. You're not objects to be acted upon just by your Christian parents, young Christians in here. You have a role and a spiritual responsibility in the kingdom of God where you are right now. Every child that can understand this. If you you wait until you've left the home or graduated high school or graduated college to do what every other believer is doing in their sanctification, becoming like Jesus, you're stunting your growth as a Christian. If Jesus saved you as a child, he means to sanctify you as a child. He means to grow you in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Now, this is for you. And the command that Paul gives to you you today is those who are in Christ and who who desire to walk in Christ is simple. Just obey. You might be relieved that the word submit is not in a passage that I'm teaching. But the word obey is. So we can't get away from it. Obey your parents in everything. Obey who? Your parents. In what? Everything. The command is simple, but it is widespread in application. You're Obedience as children is to be to your own parents, but no qualification is given concerning who your parents are, what they're like. Obedience is to good parents and bad, wise parents and foolish. You might say as a teenager, my parents don't understand me. My parents don't know what they're talking about. Paul's command still applies. Obey your parents in everything. There's no qualification put on the act of obedience. You obey in everything, the apostle says. The the word for obey there is in this active present tense. It is constant, continuous, active obedience to the word of your parents in everything. That's expansive. That's all-encompassing for you as a child under your parents' authority. So the words Paul uses means to convey that this is really descriptive of all that you do in your life. This is your Christian life right now. This is the way that you serve Christ primarily while in the home. That is your role right now in the kingdom of God. This is the only command that the Apostle Paul gives expressly for children. Actually, it is the only command in all of Scripture given expressly for children. And Paul and the rest of the biblical writers don't do that to limit the child's role in the kingdom of God. This is is a simple command, but it's not simplistic. He's, He's not condescending to kids here. This is, this is expansive. It's profound and it's important. When you look at Ephesians 6, Paul gives this command. Turn with me over there to Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1. 
He gives this command with a reference to its first occurrence in Exodus in the Ten Commandments. Ephesians 1, 6, or Ephesians 6, rather, verses 1 and 2. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The place of that command in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is important. There are two categories of laws, essentially, in the Ten Commandments. There's what many call the first table of the law. It's the first four laws, which primarily govern the person's duties before God. Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath to keep it holy. It has to do with the person's relationship to God. The second table of the law, the final six, have to do with the person's relationship to other people under God. These two tables are summarized in those commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And the second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And taking the first place in this second table of the law is the command to honor father and mother. It's in the most prominent position of the list of commands contained in the second greatest commandment. So it's one of the most important instructions given to human beings by God in life with others. As Paul mentions in Ephesians, this is the only commandment given expressly to children, is also the only or the first commandment with a promise, and in fact the only commandment among the ten with a promise, that you may live long in the land. Why is this command so Important. Paul, back in Ephesians 6, he gives the simplest of reasons there at the beginning. This is right. This goes back to the very fabric of nature, of right and wrong. God has designed children to obey their parents. It's, it's something we know from the natural law, the law written on our hearts. Every society and every nation at every time in the world has known that because God has created it that way out of his own character. If it's right for God's creations, his children in the cosmic sense to obey him as their creator, it's right for children to obey their earthly parents. Parents have that authority and that role by nature. And in formal expression of the moral character of God in his law, he gives the command, honor father and mother. So nature demands it. God's law demands it. It is one of the foundational aspects of all of morality. It's in the same breath as those commands not to steal, not to kill, not to lie. Morally speaking, breaking the commandment to honor or obey parents is the precondition for doing any of those other things. Disobedience to parents marks the ungodly. Right? Listen to Paul's warning about the wicked in the last times to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, For people will be lovers of self, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Similarly, in Romans 1, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Disobedience to parents is a symptom of a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. What comes right after inventors of evil? Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Disobedience to parents has a prominent place in these descriptions of the worst of human depravity. It may be cute at the beginning. But it's not cute in the eyes of God. You will not find a person who indulges all these other sins and yet honors his father and his mother. That happens. 
First, honor of parents, obedience to parents is foundational for the existence of the family. It's the only family command in the Ten Commandments, and it's foundational for the existence of morality in a society. Right? The most revered and trusted and obeyed figures in your lives should be your parents under God. And if there's no honor for them, there will be no honor for anyone else, including God. All the other child's duties, John MacArthur writes, including the responsibility of loving God and loving their brothers and sisters, are swept up into this one commandment, obey your parents. It's the command through which God has designed you children to learn the rest of God's commands. Everything else that God commands and all the rest. If, if parents are doing their duty to teach and to instruct, it's the way that you learn all the rest of God's word. So obedience to parents, children, is foundational for you to learn and to do all the rest of God's words for you. And thirdly, we have, we have nature demanding it, God's law demanding it. God thirdly gives a promise, which Paul mentions in Ephesians. There's nature and law, now there's the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now we know this promise was given in a specific context, right? For covenantal blessings in the promised land in Deuteronomy. It was tied to the Israelites' enjoyment of the physical land of Canaan. And yet Paul pulls forward this promise and applies it to children in the new covenant. And to be sure that the wisdom of that command endorsed, children who obey their parents are, are generally or maybe even likely, just as Matthew Henry writes, to prosper in the world and enjoy long life. And yet as we stand now in a new covenant with new and better promises, not tied to our residence in the land of Canaan, with temporal covenant blessings, we see the substance of the shadow in Christ. The land that we possess, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, which is eternal life. In our heavenly homeland, the new creation those in the old covenant longed for. So your promise in your obedience, children, is a gospel promise. Children in Christ will live forever with Him and have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Him. Children, you obey your parents in Christ because through them in the way that He has designed this new Christian family, you will learn and experience all the blessings of His righteousness and His promises and what they instruct you to do in the learn in the Christian life. You obey, as Paul says in Ephesians, in the Lord. In the Lord. You are in the Lord. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are a new creation. You're able to joyfully do all that brings glory to Him. You have a reason to obey, children, that far exceeds the practical results in life. You don't obey to live long, but because you have been given eternal life in Christ. You don't obey your parents so that it may go well with you in the physical nation, but because God has given you everything in Christ, you have a reason to obey, a motivation with gladness that far exceeds any physical fulfillment of promise in the Old Covenant. So one of the very first evidences that a child truly knows Christ and delights in Him is that they are eager to obey their parents. The stripe is gone and they want to follow Jesus. So the command to children... Obey your parents in everything, every parent and all that they rightly command. The reason Paul lists out in Ephesians, or these three reasons that he lists out in Ephesians for why your obedience matters. Nature, this is right. God's law, honor father and mother. And God's promise. I know I've mainly been in Ephesians 6 to show you that. But I think Paul condenses all three of those reasons down into this one ground in Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, some commentators view that as the limit or the qualification on obedience to parents, just as Paul says in the Lord in Ephesians. 
So, and that is true. If you've listened to any of those last several studies with the word submit in them, you know that your obedience to a given authority is expected up to the point that it would cause you to depart from obedience to Jesus. So Paul does not mean that you obey your parents when they tell you to sin or to not follow Jesus or to disobey Jesus. But those phrases also have more in mind. As, as Matthew Henry writes, it's about the motive. The motive for your obedience is the pleasure of the Lord. Your position in the Lord. It's all in reference to Him. He is the firstborn of all creation who knits you together in your mother's womb to be a blessing to your family by nature. He's the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The one who is the head of all rule and authority in Colossians 2 who in righteous command has told you what is good. And He is your Savior. The one you received as Lord in Colossians 2 verse 6 who has fulfilled the law for you. He is the substance of all these shadows of earthly promise and now promises to give you himself as you press on to know the Lord in the way that you obey your parents. So the point, children, everyone in here still under the leadership of their parents is not just that you obey your parents because it's the generally wise thing to do to get ahead in life or the generally right thing to do to avoid consequences. You obey because Christ is your life. And he obeyed the Father on earth. And gave you the parents you have to obey him and following in his footsteps. Becoming his disciple. Learning obedience to your earthly parents. As Jesus learned obedience in his humanity. That's Hebrews 5 verse 8. Becoming perfect or qualified as our representative. Our perfect sacrifice. Our high priest. And as become, Hebrews says, the source of eternal life for all who obey him. So your call to obey your parents as Christian children is a call to discipleship as Christians. Your call to obey your parents is a call to be like Jesus in one of the most straightforward and important ways in the whole Bible. Right? If Jesus learned obedience, if Jesus learned obedience as part of his earthly fulfillment of the law for us by the things which he suffered, then those who now have that law written on their hearts will desire to obey as he did to their parents. Greatest purpose in obeying your parents' children is that you walk in Christ, who obeyed his earthly parents because he was submitted to his heavenly father. You have that same call. Your heavenly father, your savior and Lord Jesus Christ gave you the parents you have to be honored, to be obeyed, so that the Lord might by his Holy Spirit sanctify you into Jesus' image. And bless your family with his peace. And in turn, bless the church in which your family lives in community. And in turn, through a healthy church with growing disciples, bless the world. Your obedience to your parents can do all of that in Christ. Your obedience to your parents, kids, has an effect upon the nations for the sake of the gospel. You have such an important role in the church. And now there may be, I know there are children in here with, with unbelieving parents, maybe with only one believing parent. You might be wondering, how do I obey my parents and everything if who they are and, and what they require of me is against the Lord? Well, you don't have to obey their commands to sin, right? You don't have to obey their commands to be quiet about Jesus, to stay away from the church, to not read your Bible, to not tell them the gospel. In fact, honoring your parents means doing all of those things. You want what's best for them. And honoring them, you are still respectful of them when you cannot obey. And in, in that sense, you can still obey in everything. Showing your parents respect in every way. In your words to them, showing your parents respect in your facial expressions to them, even when you disagree with what they're telling you to do, always listening to them, never treating them lightly, always eager to hear and obey. But ultimately, you obey the one who gave you those parents, kids. 
And Jesus learned obedience, Hebrews 5.8 says, by the things that he suffered. By the things that he suffered. Sometimes honoring ungodly parents, unbelieving parents, means that you might suffer. And in that way you learn obedience, as your Savior did. You might be ridiculed or punished wrongly, and yet in that too God is making you like Jesus. So children, your attitude is always one of honor and respect and love for your parents as your neighbor. Your duty is one of obedience to the Lord, in the Lord. Your motive is one of delight in the Lord. And all of that combines into your role of learning obedience. It's the child's role, learning obedience. The word obey at its root gives the sense of listening to. It's hupokeo. Um, hupo is, is the prefix keo from the word really where we get acoustics. It's, it's listening to. It's heeding. It's hearing. It is listening intensely and closely and then conforming to a command. It's the humble attitude of the heart to receive the instruction of your parents, the command of your parents, so that you may learn obedience and so learn to be like your Lord. That's your role in the kingdom, first and foremost. And if it is the child's duty to listen, if it's the child's role to hear, then that sets up the parent's responsibility that we have here in Colossians and Ephesians. If children are to heed, to hear, you must instruct parents. If they are to learn to obey in the Lord, in what pleases the Lord, your duty, parents, must be by your authority in your commands to instruct them concerning the Lord and what pleases the Lord. Colossians 3:21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We see even more of that responsibility to instruct clearly when we read in Ephesians. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Those are the responsibilities. The, the father is not addressed here on the basis of his rights. Right? It, it doesn't say, children, obey your parents and everything, and parents, be obeyed. It's not primarily the parental relationship. The role is not just to receive obedience, but to teach it. Right? If the child is to listen, the parents must communicate. That's the role of the parent, or the father here especially, to use one's authority not to control, but to use your authority to serve. To serve your children. By communicating what is right, you are to be, as I said, an authoritative ambassador. You are a messenger of God's requirements, a purveyor of God's truth. Your responsibility as a parent is not just to enforce a code of behavior. It's to communicate a body of truth. That's what your children need. If your children must learn obedience after the example of Christ, you must teach them obedience according to the word of Christ. That's the paramount goal of parenting, to teach the obedience of Christ. But, but bound up in that is teaching them not only the right things to do, but also the right attitudes of the heart behind what they do. That's the fulfillment of the law. It's the ultimate standard of obedience at the level of the heart, which, which they will be unable to do or unable to understand unless they have a new heart. Right? So your efforts are so that your children might walk in obedience, but walk in the obedience of faith. That is obedience that comes from faith. And in that, you are addressing the child's greatest need, which is not life skills, it's not life hacks, it's not life lessons, it's not long life in the land. It's new life in Christ. That's your child's greatest need. Your your child's greatest need is regeneration. Your, Your child needs to be born again in Christ through the gospel of Christ to receive Christ Jesus the Lord and then walk in him. So parents, everything you do for your children, everything you tell your children to do, is to be for the purpose of communicating to them their need for Christ and the sufficiency of Christ as the only one who can save them. 
You are an ambassador for the kingdom through your authority in the home. In what you command, in how you command it, and in why you command it of them. All of those things must show your child Christ. You have the standard of Christ in the law of God. You have the image of Christ in your parental care, how you command them. And you have the hope of Christ for their hearts and why you command them. And communication is also not, it's not one-sided. Right? You are to, to communicate something to your children, but you need to listen to your children to understand what they have learned. If, if all you know about the heart of your child is the general condition that it's desperately sick, that it's deceitful, you aren't communicating with them for the gospel. You need to know what is in their heart. I think Paul outlines all of that for us in this summary form in verse 21. We, we have the entire parenting task in one verse. In, in Colossians and Ephesians. So who is Paul commanding? I keep saying parents and then fathers especially because I think both are likely in view in some sense. The Greek word is pateras or patera. It can refer to fathers particularly. It's often used of, of both parents generally. You see that used of Moses' parents in Hebrews 11. I think the responsibility in both Ephesians and Colossians is not a sole responsibility for fathers or there's no mention of mothers in this text about family at all. But this is a responsibility that is led and served by fathers, especially as they serve and lead their wives and their obedience to this call as well. So fathers especially, parents generally, I think Paul's command applies. And that command in Colossians 3 is really a caution. Right? Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. In, in Ephesians 6, do not provoke your children to anger. The word provoke here in Colossians is sometimes translated exasperate. Don't frustrate your children. Don't nag your children. Don't challenge them. That's another translation. Don't challenge them or stir them up in a way that would cause them to be discouraged, to literally lose heart. The word for provoke connotes a conflict or a contest, almost as if your parenting is a competition with your child in a test of wills. So that your, your will is shown to be the stronger one. How often is parenting presented that way today as a contest of wills? Right? Parents, you have to be the stronger willed person, the one who wins that contest of wills, the battle of strength, and breaks their spirit, breaks their rebellious spirit. And yet, that is not at all the framework that Paul presents for parenting. In Ephesians, he uses a different word for provoke, meaning to embitter, to provoke to anger, to enrage. It could, as MacArthur notes, um, describe open rebellion, this internal smoldering and seething resentment. It could be a reaction to perceived injustice on their part, unfair treatment, to tyrannical authority. But both words, I think, speak to a heavy-handed parenting, a heavy-handed authority, authority of parents, a controlling, oppressing kind of leadership, something stifling which results in either angry rebellion of suffocating and claustrophobic kids or listless, sullen, muted self-isolation and despair of kids who have lost hope. You're never to parent your kids in a way that they would lose hope. The entire parenting task is that you would give your kids the hope of Christ. So parents, you can't ensure that your child will be born again and do the right thing. We know that. But I also think Scripture is pretty clear that you can produce these kind of results by your sin in abusing your parental authority. We see Christian families all the time with children who are embittered toward their parents, hostile to the things of the Lord in a way that no pagan household is. There's a reaction there, not just to 
the word of the Lord, but to your authority, to your parenting. We see children who might even remain in some religious context, but are directionless, passionless, fruitless, as they've resigned themselves to despair and condemnation. Paul's telling us that those results come as consequences, often, of sinful provocation on the part of parents. When you provoke your children, you're actually causing them to disobey God's command to honor you. You're leading them into sin. And that provocation, I would say, usually happens within the context of discipline. As conservative Christians, we are not shy or ashamed of the concept of discipline of children. Right? In fact, it's, it, sometimes it's self-preservation with as many kids as we have in this room. We talk often about the discipline of children in our study of the word, in our conversation as parents. And yet provocation happens as Christian parents when we view discipline as the sum total of discipleship or the sum total of child raising. Right? We, we rightly believe the Proverbs when it says that he who spares the rod of discipline hates his son. That's true. If we love our children, we will want what's best for them. We will discipline them when they are straying for their good. But it does not follow from that proverb that discipline is the only way to love your children. We might read in Ephesians, Paul's, Paul's text, Paul's charge as, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Full stop. Or if we include the word instruction, discipline and instruction from the Greek, nutheteo, which means admonishment, warning. We might neglect in our thinking that the admonishment, the warning, this counsel about negative things does not have to be done only negatively. Oftentimes, I think we can discipline in those ways. We discipline, but there's no reason behind it. There's no gospel reason in it. There's not a reason for the hope that lies within us. It's just behaviorism. We're treating them like dogs, like Pavlov's dogs, like B.F. Skinner's dolphins, right? We are equating them to animals, and they're not. They're image bearers of God. Sinful provocation. It's not Christian discipline. All discipline is to be combined with instruction, right? In fact, it's not just instruction that's also given as the parent's responsibility in Ephesians 6, right? We have there in Ephesians 6, verse 4, firstly, the responsibility here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Bring them up. The word there is to nourish or nurture your children. To be a parent means that we are oriented not in being served by them, but in serving them, providing for their needs. Physically, yes, that's one way that they need to grow. But also intellectually, socially, spiritually, All of it. We provide. We serve. We also instruct, it says there, in the truth of God, his way of salvation, his wisdom in the world. And then as reinforcement of that instruction, we discipline when they depart from wisdom or disobey instruction and our commands which come from God's truth and not our preferences. What are we instructing them in? It nowhere says in the task of parenting that the source of instruction is to be you, parents. You don't parent to preferences. You don't discipline to preferences. You parent only in the standard that God has given you. Much like a pastor to his congregation, the only authority that you have really is the word of God. His standards are not yours. But we discipline in loving and proportional ways. All of this is for the ultimate purpose of the opposite of what Paul warns about in Colossians 3. We want our children to be encouraged, not discouraged. Do not provoke them lest they become discouraged. This is our role as parents in the home, to be biblical encouragers in everything that we do through our 
discipline, through our instruction, through our loving care. The greatest mark of a godly parent in the home after the image of Christ is not discipline or instruction, but encouragement. It's not discipline, it's not instruction, it's encouragement. We desire that our children be encouraged, not discouraged. We not only care about what they do, but what they learn and in what they hope. That's our primary concern. We, concern, we have a concern for the heart. We have compassion for them. Compassion. This is consistently in the scriptures, the example of God with his own children. In Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, he presupposes it there, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In Isaiah 49, verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Rhetorical question, answer, no. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And Paul, again, in First, First Thessalonians 2, You know how, like a father with his children, we have exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Compassion, encouragement, nurturing, instructing. If those are not combined with disciplining, it's not Christian parenting. That's why the corresponding role to the child's listening to their parents is not just correction, it's communication. Your children need to learn. They need to know. Correcting them on the basis of what they don't know is cruel. So so your charge as parents is to do more then condition your child's behavior. It is to communicate to them the way of life in Christ. I said a little earlier, parents communicate the truth to their children and how they command and what they command and why they command it. How you command your children. What is the manner in which you communicate to them what you require of them? Do you provoke or do you encourage? Does it show Christ in the way that you treat them? What do you command of them? Is it reasonable or is it impossible? Is it self-serving or is it Christ-exalting? Is it from the imagination of man or the righteous standard of God? And why do you command it of them? Do they know? Is it biblically reasoned or is it a law that God did not make? Is it rooted in biblical wisdom or is it rooted in your own convenience? Are those reasons communicated to your kids so that they can learn the right attitudes behind what you require of them? Or are you focused only on their actions and so neglecting to serve their hearts? There are many ways we can provoke our children in this, in this vein. I just want to mention a few uh, major ways from the writings of some of the commentators I read from my own study. Firstly, be overprotective. Great way to provoke your children. As Matthew Henry writes, exercise your authority with rigor and severity. Not with kindness and gentleness, holding the reins too tight so that your children fly out with greater fierceness. Never give them a chance to learn or to develop independence. Communicate a lack of trust to your child in everything. You might be concerned with protecting them, and that's good. You might be convinced that you are acting in their interests, and yet they, if they are never allowed to grow, to learn, to even make mistakes, in a sense... How can they learn obedience from the heart if you've already ensured that the outcome is inevitable for them? Secondly, on the other side, overindulgence. On the other hand, you never let them do anything, or you, you, on one hand, you never let them do anything so as to learn to walk rightly. On the other hand, you let them do anything. Right? So that they walk without a guide. You indulge a child's sin without correction, and that will destroy his soul. He will have no pangs until death, as Psalmist Asaph speaks about the wicked. He will have no warnings about the wrath of God or the consequences of his sin. Thirdly, favoritism. 
You want to provoke or discourage your kids? Compare them to one another. Or compare them to yourself. I would never do that. Right? Well, in your sin, I think you know what you're capable of, right? You might do much worse. You see all that favoritism throughout Genesis, right? You saw the consequences in Paul's sermon last week. Favoritism fosters jealousy, envy. It humiliates a child. It destroys a child's trust in your compassion for them. Parents, the only comparisons you should be making between anyone else and your child is Jesus. He's the standard. That's who they have to see so they can see their sin. Anything less will just breed legalism in their hearts or discouragement. Because the standard they see in Christ that they will never meet is also a finished work of obedience that they can trust on in their behalf. No other person to which you compare them did that for them. All it does is breed a lack of hope. With that in mind, however, another way to discourage your child is to give him impossible commands. Unrealistic, unreasonable goals. Constantly push your child to do things you've never accomplished. Having a new standard as soon as they reach the one you set. Or punish them for failing to meet what you set. If you're always moving the goalposts, never comforting, only challenging, which is another translation of the word provoke, your child will despair. And if your affection only comes on the other end of achievement, you will teach them the opposite of the gospel. If your affection for your children only comes on the other end of achievement, you will teach them legalism, works righteousness. You will lead them away from the kingdom. Fifthly, and finally, criticism and a critical spirit. Find fault in all that they do. Assume the worst in them. Haim Gano is quoted in one of the commentaries I read. He says, a child learns what he lives. If he lives with criticism, he will not learn responsibility. He learns to condemn himself. And to find fault with others. He learns to doubt his own judgment, disparage his own ability, and distrust the intentions of others. And above all, he learns to live with continual expectation of impending doom. Just wait till dad gets home. Wait till what he does. Does that sound like encouragement? Does that sound like what a gospel home should feel like? Criticism cripples children in thought and in deed. It will produce hard-hearted critics of others in adulthood. You want to destroy any chance of teaching your children about the right attitude of the heart, just go ahead and assume the very worst of theirs in everything. And I think this is sometimes where we as Reformed Christians can go too far, as, as Paul mentioned this morning, turning the doctrine of total depravity into utter depravity. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick, and that's all we see in our kids. I don't know how many times I've, since I've become reformed that I've heard brothers and sisters when talking about the total depravity of man talk about the baby's cry, right? That baby's cry is an angry cry. It's a selfish cry. It's an impatient cry. Or, get this, he might be hungry. You might be so neglecting your charge to nourish and to care for your child, you're trying to assume the motives of their heart when they don't even have understanding. We don't need to be so reformed that we aren't realistic, Not everything in your child is utterly depraved. There's a measure of God's image that is intact. And when your children do relatively good things, you can commend them and encourage them and teach them in it, even before salvation, and still not lose your Calvinist credentials. I promise. They haven't taken my card yet. And after salvation, we need to understand that if your child is saved, he is a new creation. His heart is new. It's not desperately wicked. And you need to teach your child accordingly how to battle the flesh. 
while not distrusting his every motive. You turn children into discouraged, crippled introspectives or proud-hearted Pharisees when you assume the motives of everyone else and not into grateful disciples of the Lord. Even in their sins, their mistakes, their errors, children need your compassion, parents. Not your criticism. They need your affection. They need your comfort, your involvement, not just in correcting their behavior, but in living with them, in shaping their minds and influencing their will and communicating to their hearts. They don't need your condemnation. Right? John says if they don't believe, they're condemned already. That's their need. You're the parent on basis of their need. What they need is hope. What they need is forgiveness. And the way that you parent your children will tell them whether there is hope for them, whether there is forgiveness for them, or only punishment, condemnation, a continual expectation of impending doom. If all you offer is correction and discipline in the punitive sense, that's all they will expect in this life or in the next. So in summary, what is provoking or stirring our children to anger or discouragement? It is parenting as if your relationship is all about them or parenting as if your relationship is all about you. The behavior of my kids is a reflection on me, so I really care about what they do. It's overindulgence so as to spoil them, to neglect them, or overprotection and excessive discipline so as to humiliate and oppress them. You control them so that they make you look good. This is a problem, I think, in conservative Christianity. It can be a badge of honor among young parents to talk about how often or how early they started disciplining their kids. But your, your responsibility started earlier than that in nurturing your children and encouraging them. What are you communicating to them even when they can't understand right now? What is the disposition of your heart, of your face toward them when they make mistakes? So the opposite of this provocation is to parent as if your relationship with them is all about Jesus. It's not about them so as to spoil them. It's not about you so as to discourage them. It's about Christ so as to satisfy them at the level of their greatest need and equip them to find true purpose in life. How you command them needs to be compassionate. What you command them needs to be consistent and Christ-like. God's rules, not yours. Not laws where there is no law. Adding to God's rules the commandments of men so as to burden them. And why you command it of them needs to give them the hope of Christ. For their hearts. This is the glory of the gospel in the parent child relationship. You are to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, even to your children, so that they might hope in Christ and live in that hope. So I'd say one practical encouragement today parents, let your reason in parenting never be because I said so. I know that's easy, it's convenient, technically it's true in a limited sense, but it's not the purpose of your parenting, it's not the purpose of your instruction. It's well short of what your children need. The consistent purpose for what you instruct and why you correct and how you comfort and encourage needs to be the same motive that Paul gave to children in verse 20. For this pleases the Lord. In what you command, you need to tell them, this is what the Lord wants you to do to honor him. This is what pleases Christ. When you correct them, you need to ask them, do you think this pleases the Lord, that attitude, what you are doing, how you're treating those around you? Is that like Jesus? And in your discipline and reconciliation with them, you need to remind them that your relationship is more, is about more than mother and father. It's about the Lord. As much as your parents can do for you, we can't change your heart. We can forgive you in our relationship, but we can't forgive your sin. We can tell what God requires of you, but we can't cause you to walk in his commands. What you need done for you to please the Lord, children, only the Lord can do. 
what God requires. Jesus has fulfilled for you what God demands in punishment. Jesus paid in blood upon the cross and through the blessings we as your parents can give you. And know the blessings of your parents that we can give you because of the Lord are many. Only Christ can bless you with what you truly need. So that your sins can be paid so that you may live in his resurrection. And his blessings in the Christian life, MacArthur writes, are so much greater and much more infinite than what we can give. We want you to be, this is the the message you communicate to them always, we want you to be in a position to be blessed by him. We want you to trust the Lord. We want you to know the Lord and to press on to know the Lord yet more. Do you communicate that in what you command? Parents, teach your children what is right. Tell them God is the one who made it right and proclaim to them the truth that only Christ can make them right with God. That's your role. That's child-parent relationship. As with marriage relationship, though in a different way, it's just to display the glory of the gospel. It's the new parent-child bond in a home that is ruled by Christ so as to be one of mutual desire to please the Lord in everything. Children in your obedient discipleship, parents in authoritative ambassadorship. Both proclaim the glory of the gospel in the home. If you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you for your word. The time that we have to open it and to be encouraged, Lord, I pray that we would be compelled, not out of self-love, Lord, selfish desire, fear of man, Lord, but the love of Christ, to live in everything, in word and in deed, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to do what you have called us to do, to become more like Christ as children to parents, to become more like Jesus as parents to, to children. Lord, I pray that you would bless our congregation, Lord, in this way, so that you would call many more from death to life for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.